You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the NC Insider. Uh, with us this week, we've got Lauren Horsch from the Insider and Will Doran from the News and Observer. Uh, lots of stuff to get with get to with an election week, although uh, it's all municipal elections, so nothing super uh, exciting to state politics. But we'll talk a little about uh, what happened on Tuesday night and what impact that might have on uh, 2018. We'll uh, look at uh, some of the sexual harassment issues uh, that we've seen in state government uh, over the last few years and sort of how that's been handled uh, by uh, state officials. And uh, we'll talk a little about some of the uh, legal action this week uh, at the legislature and involving uh, folks from the legislature and the governor's branch. So uh, let's start off. I guess we can uh, hit the elections first. Um, big news this week um, out of uh, Charlotte, I guess the uh, Republican uh, mayoral candidate there uh, did not succeed and did not actually come close to succeeding uh, as much as the, the Republican Party had put into the uh, his candidacy, Vi Lyles, uh, new mayor of Charlotte, and uh, I guess making history as the first uh, African-American female mayor of uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, Raleigh, the uh, incumbent Nancy McFarland managed to win uh, fairly handily over challenger Charles Francis after a fairly bruising. Uh, it was, seemed like always it was like a primary process in the, the Democratic Party in, uh, in Raleigh, even though uh, McFarland's technically uh, independent. And then, of course, Francis was the, the Democrat in the race. Lots of uh, angst between the two factions there on who should be supporting who and uh, who is the, the better candidate out of that t- those two. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how much that, uh, I guess, plays into uh, next year's election. But uh, any other takeaways, you guys, from... Um, Tuesday night in terms of what uh, 2018 might look like in North Carolina? Well, I saw a lot of Democratic legislators on Twitter who were really just spiking the ball on the Virginia results, you know, saying if, you know, you know, basically North Carolina politics aren't that much different from Virginia politics. It's purple state, too. And if this is what happened there, you know, basically they were saying we can't wait until 2018. And, you know, sounds like, you know, kind of going into overdrive, trying to recruit candidates, you know, fundraise. And, you know, it seemed like there was a lot of enthusiasm um, on the Democratic side. Yeah, and then I think the Republicans were sort of downplaying things. I think the the interesting thing was looking at the two um, emails, uh, press releases we got on election night from the NC Democrats and the NC Republicans. The Republicans was a was about one paragraph long, and it highlighted that uh, Republicans had won the uh, mayoral race in, uh, I believe it was Greenville and Andrews. Andrews, you might not have heard of because it's a fairly small town in the almost westernmost part of North Carolina. Um, and uh, that was the ones they were highlighting. And then, of course, the Democrats had this like page, like almost two page statement about how great everything was in the election. So, um, yeah, well, and I mean, you even saw, you know, a lot of times in municipal politics, you know, the issues don't really get into the big political issues that we talk about at the state or the federal level. It's, you know, what do people think about growth and development? What do people think about the parks bond? You know, it's things like that. But I think, you know, this year you really saw a lot of statewide issues creeping into these local races. You know, in Fayetteville, you had the uh, the mayor, Nat, Nat Robinson, lost. Uh, he was the, you know, really the only Republican mayor of a major city yeah, here in North Carolina. I think Carolina. now we've looked down. If you want to find the uh, the Republican mayor of the biggest city controlled by a Republican mayor, it's either High Point or Greenville. I think the High Point race looks like it's going to be won by a Republican, but it was a little bit close and hard to determine. And then Greenville, which I think is the 10th largest city in the state, 
has a Republican mayor through this election. But uh, with, with Fayetteville uh, losing for the, for the Republicans, which I think yeah. both parties had spent a lot of money in that, which I thought was interesting because I think Fayetteville yeah. politics usually don't get that much uh, interest outside of Fayetteville. But And it was so interesting because, I mean, it's a heavy, heavy military town, which is, you know, obviously kind of built in support for Republican candidates. You know, I, I got the feeling that he was, you know, at least fairly popular or at least not unpopular. But I think it was just part of this whole partisan backlash. Um, yeah. in, a- in Apex, you also saw Pat McCrory's former spokesman, Graham Wilson, came in dead last in that town council race. And yeah. he's a real prominent guy in town. He was yeah. the head of the Chamber of Commerce. I think he used to be a town councilman. Yeah. So you would have thought like even people knew him before his Pat McCrory days. So they'd be judging him not necessarily by what he did for three or four years. But yeah, um, but yeah it was a sort of desperate loss from him. And I guess the, the big trends in Virginia were that Democratic turnout was up so high, so I almost wonder how much that sort of carried down to municipal elections here that just more Democrats than Republicans were turning out uh, in these elections, and a lot of times they were voting by party as opposed to some sort of growth and development issue that may have been going on locally. Yeah, yeah. One thing I noticed that I don't think a lot of people have talked about, um, and this is done in Asheville, and this wasn't an election for, I mean, it was it kind of knew what was going to happen. But what was interesting is they had a referendum on the ballot um, to split the city up into districts. And that was sent forth from the General Assembly. You know, they said, we're going to split Asheville into six districts. Um, And it was a mandate, I do believe, given from the General Assembly. But the town decided instead that they were going to vote to see if this is actually what the residents wanted. And so there's now this clash between uh, the city of Asheville and the General Assembly. And I know Senator Chuck Edwards, who represents like just a sliver of South Asheville is saying like that they had no reason to do he, he that. He said the no election was a sham, sham. even yeah. though it was uh, 75% uh, in favor uh, of uh, not having a, a district system in Asheville. And I guess the, what was the impetus behind this was that if you go to a, a strict district system, then there's some areas of Asheville that might perhaps lean more conservative and they would be more likely to have representation than uh, if you elect everybody citywide. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like that's going to end up in a legal battle of some kind. Well, yeah, because, I mean, I think they gave Asheville a deadline of November 1st to draw the districts. And obviously that didn't happen because they were waiting for the election yeah. results. And I saw and the mayor was quoted as saying that she thought that they, it by would, having the referendum, it was somehow binding, binding. And that would supersede what the legislature did, which I'm, I'm not sure if that would hold up in court or not. Yeah. But So we'll see what the General Assembly does, because I think the bill said if Ash, if the city of Asheville decided not to draw the districts, so the General Assembly had the authority to draw the districts. So, yeah, like you said, I think we're going to maybe have a legal battle here. But I think that was a good instance of how, you know, municipalities are kind of fighting back against what the state is doing. And it's, you know, we might see more of that soon. So Yeah, and certainly if the uh, given this sort of big partisan shift that you don't have uh, Republicans in charge of many of the cities, um, that's probably going to create more of an impetus for some of the uh, power struggles between the municipal level and the the state level just because you do have uh, more liberal representation in the cities. And I guess some of that's just indicative of a demographic shift that uh, people whose views lean conservative are are tending to live outside of city limits or in a suburb or in a smaller town, uh, whereas people in in the most urban areas tend to, to lean so liberal that there's very little chance for uh, someone like uh, Republican Kenny Smith in Charlotte to become a, a mayor, even 
uh, with all the, the political turmoil in Charlotte in the last couple of years. Uh, I guess, is it, mm-hmm. is it Pat McCrory still the last Republican mayor of Charlotte? Um, yeah. And I think he was yeah. quoted this week as saying he thought he, he might legitimately be the last ever uh, to mm-hmm. be Republican mayor of Charlotte. Uh, which incidentally, he was in the news this week. Uh, we should uh, mention him briefly uh, for his uh, his one year anniversary of his lost radio interview with a Christian radio host, uh, where he uh, was explaining some of the the details of uh, uh, some of the threats he'd faced and harassment that, that his wife. How not... he, yeah, how he and his wife dealt with some of the threats. Where was it in Asheville again, or yeah, Charlotte? Uh, Asheville. They... they were walking down the street, and she wanted to walk on the other side of the street in case something bad case would something happen. Happened. And then it gets better. Uh, this didn't actually make the story. I wrote off of it, but the, uh, apparently they ended up going into the same store, and in the store, someone comes up to her and asks, is she with him? And she claimed not to know him. Uh, oh, my gosh. Which, you know... Well, because even he said he said he was waiting until after 2018 to announce if he was going to run again. Yeah, he kind of wants to see, does the good old boy system in politics creep back, which he says he's seen happen with both parties yeah. uh, since he left office. So, um, so we'll, we'll see what McCrory does. What we do know is he will probably be a regular feature of uh, Charlotte Radio. He's been doing this uh, daily uh, brief commentary on their morning show on whatever the news of the day is. He he popped up at some of the election night events in Charlotte and I think came up in the news there. So we'll, you know, whether he runs or not in 2018, uh, we're going to keep seeing and hearing from uh, from Pat McCrory for like, a while. Yeah, because I think he's also been doing other election events or campaign events for general assembly members. I yeah, think he was Kyle in Stokes Hall, County think, for Kyle yeah, Hall. State Representative Kyle Hall. He's um, a Republican. Yeah. So that w- yeah, we're going to see him. I think he's still a power broker for some conservatives in the state. So we'll see how that goes. Some people might be annoyed by him staying in the headlines. But I think yeah, that's how McCrory would like it. I get angry tweets every time we write about <laughs> Pat McCrory. Why, why don't you just like, start ignoring him? It's like, well, if he's going to run for governor, potentially run for governor in 2020, what he says is still of interest because people want to know who their candidates are going to be. Yeah. Um, but anyway, enough about McCrory for this episode <laughs> of Domecast. Uh, we'll probably talk about him again later. Um, do you want to talk about the governor's powers a little bit? There was a ruling this week from the NC Court of Appeals on one of the uh, many lawsuits from Governor Roy Cooper against the legislature. It's hard to keep track of them all, but this is the one that involved the confirmation process for members of Cooper's cabinet. Uh, Cooper was arguing that by making the confirmation the cabinet members go through a confirmation process, uh, that was an unconstitutional uh, infringement on his authority. Uh, the legislator said, no, there's something in the Constitution that basically gives them the power to do that. Um, so that law put on hold briefly, uh, then reinstated long enough for all of his cabinet members to, I think, get confirmed unanimously. So it ended up being less controversial than a lot of people expected. Uh, now the Court of Appeals is ruling in favor of the legislature in a, I think, uh, unanimous uh, three-judge panel, uh, all of whom were Republican judges, saying that they uh, thought that this was perfectly fine for the legislature to do this, no constitutional issues. Uh, Cooper's response was sort of telling that he said they expected this outcome, I assume a reference to uh, the fact that the three judges were Republican, and that uh, he expects to uh, perhaps a different outcome at the state Supreme Court. State Supreme Court, we note, is five to four uh, in favor of Democrats. So we'll, we'll see if uh, if the vote on the Supreme Court somehow comes along partisan lines or uh, whether some other forces will be at play and how that gets resolved, but uh, probably a while before we hear about that. So I mean, uh, put that on the back burner for a few weeks or months and uh, see whatever other uh, lawsuit verdicts we get in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and I kind of found that ruling a little bit unsurprising personally because if you had sat through some of those confirmation hearings, they were only one or two were testy. They were mostly pretty civil, and I thought it was a good chance for 
lawmakers to get to know who was going to be in Cooper's cabinet. And I think a lot of people there were like, well, the system's working. It's fine. Yeah, I think a lot of people sort of they suspected, particularly with the dynamics of a Republican legislature and a Democratic governor, that there might be some, you know, you, don't, you can't necessarily filibuster at the legislature, no. but some sort of attempt to block some of the nominees. Um, and of course, he had interim nominees in place. So I think they he would have had somebody on his side in these agencies one way or the other. Uh, but those certainly did not produce any fireworks at all. Um, and I think Legally speaking, they probably have more of a constitutional basis for this law than some of the other uh, changes in the the power structure with the governor's branch. Um, So this might be the best shot the legislature has at winning one of these just in terms of the sort of facts of the case and what the Constitution actually says. Anyway, uh, other things going on this week. Uh, we had a couple committee meetings. Uh, speaking of the judges, the uh, judicial uh, districting plan was discussed in a four and a half hour uh, committee meeting in the Senate side, which thankfully none of the three of us had to sit through, but some other uh, intrepid <laughs> reporters managed to suffer through and uh, determined that uh, nothing real new, new was expressed in the committee meeting. Uh, it was basically the Senate uh, hearing from Justin Burr about his plan to reshape the districts. Uh, the Senate, of course, is also considering merit selection, which they did not any particular plans for uh, at this meeting. Um, so I guess that'll be something for a, a future discussion. Uh, the committee will continue to meet, I think, through December. So we'll see uh, if anything more exciting comes out of there uh, next time they meet for four and a half hours. Uh, will, you wrote a little about this week, uh, sort of in the aftermath of all this uh, issues with sexual harassment in the workplace um, throughout the country, looking a little bit at the state level and, and what's uh, going on in, in state government. What'd you find? Yeah, well, what I found is that really no one has any idea how prevalent sexual harassment is among the state workforce here in North Carolina. And there are hundreds of thousands of people who work for the state. You've got all the state employees at all the agencies. You've got all the public school employees. You've got all the university employees. You've got all the contractors who you know work for private companies but work with the state. Hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and the state, number one, doesn't track how many people are disciplined for sexual harassment, how many complaints are filed regarding sexual harassment, anything like that. And two, according to the HR office, couldn't do that even if they wanted to, uh, because really the way that these things are coded, you know, it's a very bureaucratic process whenever you get disciplined. Um, Most of the time it's just written up as generic personal misconduct. Um, And, you know, that can mean any number of different things. Um, So there's really no telling, you know, whether or not sexual harassment is a problem in the state workforce or not. Um, I took it upon myself to try and find some cases about it um, because, you know, normally these things because the personnel records are private, but if someone appeals to get their job back, goes to the Office of Administrative Hearings, and then that becomes usually a public record. So I just sat on my computer and clicked through 70 or 80 rulings from the OAH on a very, very, very boring day. That sounds thrilling. (laughs) (laughs) And eventually came across a few instances of people who had been fired over, you know, sexual harassment or other, you know, sexually kind of uh, related issues um, and wrote about one of them, uh, probably the most egregious that I found so far. Um, which is this uh, prison supervisor down in Lumberton who uh, apparently for years had been harassing uh, women female correctional officers who worked under him at this prison. And he would say just 
nasty, gross comments to them. Uh, I won't repeat them on air, but if you want to, aren't they all listed in your story? I, I list a few of them <laughs> in the story. So if you're uh, if you're curious about you know what kind of comments uh, are considered yeah. legally over the line, you can I go read there a few of them. They are it. pretty bad. It's not like one of those ones where it's like, well, they could be construed as inappropriate, but maybe it wasn't. It was, it was way, way over the line. Exactly. And then he also, it, it evolved beyond that. He would, you know, rub his groin in these people's, these women's presence. He would call them into his office so that he could grab them and, you know, I don't know, playground flirting sort of way. Yeah. He would make them bend over to pick things up and, you know, look down at his pants and there was a bulge. So he's denied everything. He says that they're all just out to get him and or and or that they have just misconstrued. It, it, the argument was kind of unclear. Um, but uh, anyways, the judge upheld his firing for all of this. And he's appealing again, so it's not over. Maybe a, a new judge will, will find the facts differently. But, um, you know, it just kind of illustrates how, you know, there are these cases where, you know, in this case, this was alleged to have gone on for at least three years before anything happened before even any women reported it and then you know it took another almost year after they reported it until he was you know the investigation finished and he got fired um you know it just shows how you know one people are reluctant to report things like this and you know two even when they do report it you know state doesn't keep track of it there's really no way for the public to know about it unless you know one newspapers report it or two you know individual members of the public feel like just going to this, you know, court website and scrolling through hearings to see, you know, kind of what's been going on. Yeah, it really doesn't get publicized at all, and you sort of figure that makes it easy for these same people, maybe not in state government, but certainly to get a, uh, a job somewhere else where their their record doesn't necessarily catch up with them. Exactly, exactly. So anyways, that's something that I hope that we'll be looking more at if anyone has any tips that they want to send me about cases that they've heard about or you know ways that would make it easier for me to do this reporting please let me know um but uh yeah um you know i wish that you know there's only one of these stories that we could write and that's it but there there's a lot, a lot more of those out there yeah and, and while we're on this topic, uh, Lauren, you've been looking at some of the uh, news stories out of other state uh, capitals about issues uh, within legislatures, uh, and we haven't heard any uh, reports, uh, at least publicly, out of our legislature about this stuff, but you're looking into that, and uh, you had a call out on Twitter this week for folks if they have uh, know of anything or have heard anything, and happy to talk off the record, I guess, if uh, yeah. you hear from anybody. Yeah, so, I mean, we've seen it across the nation. I mean, one of the most recent ones was out of Boston. Um, you know, just rampant, you know, sexual harassment, some assaults. Um, and so I know anecdotally, you know, just talking with other women in the building, I mean, some unsavory comments have been said, but I think, you know, in the good old boy environment of the General Assembly and state politics, there are some stories out there. So I know I have one woman who has reached out to me, but if any other women or men, even for that matter. It doesn't matter if you were an aide, a lobbyist, or a lawmaker yourself. I mean, reach out. I'll listen. So, 
Yep. So yeah, hit up Lauren. You can email her or uh, send her a private uh, Twitter message uh, and uh, mm-hmm. sort of weigh in that way. We're we're happy again to uh, keep people confidential. I think this is a sort of story. If we if we do it, chances are we'll be relying on people who, who come to us and don't want their name used. And we're we're glad to uh, keep that level of confidentiality so that uh, folks don't uh, find themselves in dealing with any any other harassment as a result yeah. of uh, of coming forward with, with some stories about things happening at the legislative building. Exactly. I should mention that in the, the story about the prison supervisor I wrote, uh, while we named him, we kept the four women who had accused him uh, confidential. We kept their names private. Uh, the judge noted that there was a, you know, a chance for retaliation against them. And, you know, I, I think anyone who's been following the national news uh, knows that that's definitely true. Well, yeah, even in politics, I mean, a lot of women don't want to come forward because they are scared for their careers. Like, they don't want to say, you know, this you know, lawmaker said this to me or did this to me because they want to keep their careers and they're scared that if they do say something, you know, that lawmaker will retaliate and, you know, say like, oh, you shouldn't hire her because she does this or that. Um, so I think it is really important for women and men out there to know that if they have been harassed or assaulted that, you know, those of us who are willing to tell their stories will also protect them. I was trying to think what else uh, was going on this week. Uh, a fair number of committee meetings at the legislatures were in the, the oversight uh, committee period, and there's like a ton more of these next week. A lot of them very kind of dull stuff of, uh, of going through what different state agencies do and uh, improvements they're trying to make. Uh, a few fireworks this week, I, I guess most notably the committee meeting that I was in, uh, addressing the... Um, audit that Beth Wood did of uh, a state contract with a couple of towing and recovery companies that basically have a contract with the state. If your car is uh, seized by the government because you're a repeat drunk driver or it's a stolen car or something of that nature, uh, these are the companies that uh, take the cars and they store it until uh, the uh, legal case is resolved or uh, get it sold if, if that's indeed what the state ends up doing or what the court system ends up doing. Uh, Wood found that there was, I think, over 200 uh, cars that were not accounted for uh, as her office did the audit within these companies. Uh, the companies were, have not been thrilled by the audit. Uh, they believe they can't account for these cars. Um, they're upset with how she's handled it. Uh, and they've got a fairly powerful ally in the legislature, uh, House Rules Chairman David Lewis, uh, who spoke out um, in favor of the companies and sort of defended them uh, and criticized the audit uh, during a committee meeting this week. Um, he was uh, quick to get in an exchange with uh, Beth Wood where uh, he was questioning her and at one point she got frustrated and responded with, well, bless your heart. Uh, then he called her out for that for what he believed <laughs> to be uh, inappropriate uh, disrespect from her uh, in, in this exchange. Uh, and I've uh, noted that uh, David Lewis uh, was uh, in the headlines for the same uh, business uh, in the past, the, there was an effort a couple years ago to uh, have the state take over these contracts uh, and basically just do the work in, uh, through a state agency. Uh, Lewis had put something in a uh, unrelated bill sort of towards the end of the session that uh, would not have allow that to take effect, would keep the contracts in place. Uh, and it came out that uh, he had some fairly major campaign contributions from uh, one of these companies. Uh, an ethics complaint was filed against him by another legislature that was uh, dismissed. Uh, and uh, since then, not much has come of that except for it's now back in the news with this company uh, and the uh, company, which is a 
company down in his district owned by a guy named Ricky Day. Mr. Day has uh, given, I think, the already the maximum amount for the two-year cycle uh, of the current election uh, as of this March. So some of the top, uh, Lewis's uh, top campaign donors, and I asked Lewis about it, and he told me that, uh, I think his words were, uh, Ricky is a constituent, and I worked very hard for my constituents uh, when I asked about perhaps any influence that that contribution may have had. So that was an interesting moment. There's also an interesting uh, report this week on the Broughton Mental Hospital out in Morganton. Uh, it's under construction. It was supposed to be done in 2014. Uh, the state earlier this year fired the contractor for shoddy work and uh, all the delays. Uh, the insurance company took over. The insurance company apparently hired back the same contractor. Um, they're back to doing the work and claim they're going to have it done by March. Uh, the state is not so confident. They think it's going to take until perhaps August or September of next year, at which point uh, I believe this mental hospital will be four years late uh, in an environment where uh, psychiatric beds are hard to come by. There's a, a waiting list. Lots of people get stuck in the emergency room or uh, in a county jail or something waiting for a, a bed to come open in one of these hospitals. Uh, and this is going to uh, increase the capacity out in the western end of the state, uh, but only when the uh, hospital is actually complete. Uh, which it hasn't gotten yet. Apparently the floors weren't level and the fireproofing was done, done wrong and uh, work is being completed out of order. It, it sounded like an incredible mess from the, uh, the DHHS uh, financial officer that was giving a report to lawmakers uh, this week. So that was a, another interesting one to watch. Uh, unless you guys have anything else that came up this week, I think we'll take a quick break and uh, we'll be back with a one-on-one -on -one version of uh, Headliner of the Week since we only have uh, two panelists this week. So stay with us. I love Carolina Blue Sky. You know what I love? I love North Carolina barbecue. With vinegar and red sauce. We love taking family trips to the beach. Family trips to the beach. I love to fire up the grill with my friends. Firing up the grill with next door neighbors. North Carolina is really my home. North Carolina is home. Home behind the accent is just another North Carolinian. Visit UnitingNC.org to learn more about the diversity that makes our state great. And welcome back to Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from The Insider. It is now time for Headliner of the Week, the segment where we ask our panelists, uh, both two of them this week, uh, on who the uh, biggest headliner of the week was, and then we'll uh, choose the winner of the uh, the grand prize that is the bragging right of anyone who listens to this podcast. Uh, we'll start with Will Doran. Will, uh, who's your headliner of the week this week? Mine is Braxton Wilson. He is a Black Lives Matter activist, and as of Tuesday, he's also a city council member in Charlotte. Um, kind of going along this same national trend that we saw in the elections Tuesday of activists winning elections yeah. all over the country. Yeah, I think there was a the new district attorney in the Philadelphia area is also involved with Black Lives Matter, if I remember yeah. correctly. Up in Virginia, you had the transgender woman who beat the sponsor of Virginia's version of HB2. Uh, there was, I saw a story about some woman uh, who won against uh, an incumbent who she got mad at because he had criticized the Women's March. So she decided to run against him and beat him. And it's, it's this whole trend, really, that we saw on Tuesday of these activists winning. In a, and Braxton was actually, he was in a photo that went viral after the, uh, the Keith Lamont Scott shooting and then the protests that, that followed that, um, you know, shirtless with his fist raised in front of a line of Charlotte police. Oh, that guy. That's yeah. the end of that photo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, now he's, you know, one of 
the bosses of the police, you know, one of the people who's charged, you know, with kind of overseeing that department, you know, obviously in addition to the rest of city government. But, um, you know, I have a feeling that we'll probably be hearing his name more in the news. You know, Charlotte politicians, as we know from Jennifer Roberts, haven't been shy about, you know, wading into, you know, bigger social issues. Um, and so he's my headliner. All right. Braxton Williams. Uh, Wilson. Wilson, excuse me. Uh, I got to learn that name because it's going to be in the news. Uh, so uh, Braxton Wilson in the headliner uh, of the week uh, nomination jar. Uh, Lauren, who you got this week? So I apologize. Mine is rarely politically adjacent today. Um, but it is um, a man named Robert Manson who is part of the FBI uh, counterterrorism unit. He's a supervisor. And why he's our headliner is because um, – he and other F- members of his FBI unit um, alleged that they were out in Charlotte, North Carolina for training and uh, had a few drinks. I don't know if they were craft beers. I hope they were craft beers. Lots of good craft beers, um, Charlotte. <laughs> but apparently they had too much and met up with some women. And he woke up the next morning to find his gun missing and a $6,000 Rolex watch. Um, so this has gotten a lot of play online, mostly because people are like, this happened in Charlotte? Um, and people are like, I had no idea people threw down in Charlotte yeah. like this. I know that's um, where I go when I want a wild hey, Charlotte's I mean, got a lot. Well, because, yeah. you know, Raleigh is no, Raleigh gets the nickname Drunk Town, but uh, not yeah. Charlotte. Um, they do so. have a Hooters on their main street, so there's that. <laughs> do they really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord. Um, but yeah, so this is just, it's gotten... Um, a lot of play, at least on my Twitter feed, people have reacted very well to it. Um, some people are obviously pretty shocked to hear that this happened in Charlotte, and other people are like, "Why was his? Where was his gun? Like, why? Why was this woman able to steal it?" But so, yeah, I didn't was, realize FBI you could get a nice Rolex with the uh, paycheck yeah. from the FBI. Yeah, that, it's uh, it's listed in the New York Times because this is a story out of the New York Times, a six thousand dollars and also sixty dollars in cash from his wallet, but. I mean, I think the big ticket items were his service revolver and... Uh, yeah, you don't want watch. that to get stolen. <laughs> yeah, so good reporting from the New York Times there. I got to give them a shout out. Um, but yeah, that was not my non-political headliner of the week. All right, and the person's name again was, since I'm apparently terrible with names today. Uh, Robert Manson. All right, Robert Manson. Uh, no relation, I guess, to the other Manson that's uh, famous. Uh, in the hat along with uh, Braxton Wilson, the uh, new Charlotte City Council member and Black Lives Matter activist. Uh, and out of those, uh, well, I think uh, Mr. Manson is uh, quite interesting. And uh, if he continues to hang out in Charlotte uh, in the way that he has, we might be hearing more from him. Uh, we'll definitely be hearing more from uh, Braxton Wilson uh, as he joins the Charlotte City Council and uh, probably gets a bigger voice in some of the uh, big issues of policing and uh, race that uh, Charlotte's grappling with and will continue to be grappling with. So uh, Will is our winner this week for uh, that nomination. And uh, that brings us to the end of this week's Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.